don't know which days of your life stand out most to you. Probably different ones for different reasons. But if you've ever been married, it would be odd for you to have forgotten that day. You, yeah. Uh, our wedding day, when Yodi and I got married, it was at the end of a week of blizzard. Oklahoma blizzard. January 5th. 1979, uh, it snowed, then it rained, uh, and then the rain froze, did that about two days in a row, and then it snowed on top of that. And then I think it rained on top of that snow. So it was like, it was like layers, laminated ice storm, basically, were the conditions for our wedding. We had sent out, oh, I think my parents knew a lot of people, and so we were thinking maybe 300, some odd 50 people would show up. We had about 80 people able to make it even to the church building uh, the day of our wedding. Uh, I had a pretty easy day because uh, my house was pretty close to where we were getting married anyway. Yodi, on the other hand, uh, had a bunch of chores that she and her family had to do that day. Um, and they had to drive all over Oklahoma. It took all day, she said, to drive slowly, carefully around the streets of Oklahoma City to get the different jobs done uh, that she had to do, which included, I think, hair and makeup and mani-pedi and stuff I don't understand. But anyway, I will testify to this. It was totally worth it. You know, we, we observed the old tr- traditions. I did not get to see her at all that day. When she came walking down the aisle, I will never forget how beautiful she looked. It is, I mean, we have a lot of pretty women at Wilshire. None of you will ever be as beautiful. I'm sorry. As Yodi was on that, it was the most, it was, I just grinned. You, you can actually go and look at the photographs. Of, I just have this goofy grin. I promise I was not on any drugs. I just, I don't know. That's my wedding day. That's my wedding day. Actually, all wedding days tend to, you know, be filled with various levels and varieties of joy, I think. Every one of you can probably tell similar stories. Men and the women can tell similar stories. In the Bible, we've got lots of different images of heaven. We've got lots of different ways of explaining what this inexplicable experience will be like. We, you know, we have these experiences in this world, and God, in various ways, has to try and get our brains to kind of crack open enough to try to begin to get a vision of what that next reality, the reality that we often call heaven or the kingdom of heaven, what that's going to be like. But I actually think the most powerful image used in Scripture is that heaven is a marriage. Heaven is a wedding and a marriage. And that's, of course, how the Bible, as it's structured now, ends. The book of Revelation uses, as Jeremy talked to us last week, uses lots of temple imagery. And then we have this wedding imagery that is also temple imagery. That's the ending of the book of Revelation. And that's what I want to talk about today. Mostly we're going to be in those last 
uh, two or three chapters of the book of Revelation. I couldn't put everything on the study sheet that I want you to know about and look at, so I really recommend that you open your Bibles as well as using the study sheets to follow along this morning. See, the deal is, this image of a wedding, of a marriage, is an old image. It goes way back into the Old Testament. There are several passages we could have used. I just picked this one out of Isaiah 62, just so you know that there's a lot of these passages in there. As a young man marries a young woman, so were your builders. This is God speaking to Israel. So will your builder marry you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So will your God rejoice over you. That's the, that's the promise that, that Israel, even though God is blessing you now and working with you now and He's made His home with you now through the temple, there is something better coming. There is a more complete union on its way. God has this plan and the image He wants to use is this image of marriage. And then in, in the New Testament, of course, that just accelerates that process of describing what comes next in terms of a marriage. John 3, uh, 27, people come up and they ask John the Baptist, who's just become this meteor in the middle of the community of Israel. He's had such an incredible impact. Everybody says, you think he's the Messiah? Maybe he's the Messiah. You think he's the Christ? He could be the Messiah. He could be the anointed one. And so they ask him, and he says this, To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. John says, I am at best the best man. Jesus is the one who's getting married. Jesus is the bridegroom. In Ephesians chapter 5, you know, Paul was a very deep thinker, so every time he says, now... What I'm going to talk about next is a mystery. If it's a mystery to Paul, it's definitely going to be confusing to us. And and here's one of those places where he said, now I'm talking about a mystery here, but he tries to get our brains to sort of broaden enough to get this image. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then skipping down to verse 31, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh This is a profound mystery because I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, there is an incredible mystery about the fact that humans marry each other, that men and women marry each other, but that is, that's a profound mystery, but it is a reflection of this deeper reality that is on its way, that's that's coming towards us. This marriage between God in the form of Christ and God's people, God's church. 
And that's repeated in Revelation 19. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Alleluia. And then a voice came from the throne, Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water and the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. That is magnificent imagery to help our brains rise up to what's about to happen. The marriage of God in the form of Christ to God's people is actually what we've been headed toward the entire time from the beginning of the Bible to now. The completed form, here's what's in your study sheet, the completed form of God's temple is the full marriage of God with God's people. So what the temple's been hinting at, and other aspects of the Old Testament theology hinted at, and the New Testament has been pointing toward, is that there's coming this final union between God and His people. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able to walk with God. I don't think that was the full completion. That's not like heaven, but it was a foretaste a little bit. That union with God, even though it was partial in the Garden of Eden, that was broken and shattered because of sin, because of the fall. And God has been working out His plan to to surpass the Garden of Eden in the final state of humanity. In the ages of the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob and, and others, God will visit We'll make a place holy because God is there at least visiting for a time. Jacob has a vision of God coming down or the angels of God coming down and rising up on that stairway. And various other places become holy for a time because heaven and earth come close together. That's the temple idea. And then when Israel meets God at Mount Sinai, heaven comes down to Mount Sinai. And to commemorate that and to commemorate the covenant that's been made, God says, make a tent for me, a tabernacle for me, and here's how you're going to make it. And He gives all the dimensions and He explains everything that's going to be in it. And He says, because I'm going to be with you. God wants to be with His people. The tabernacle is still necessary because the people aren't righteous yet, but... But God is able to be, to dwell with them. When they finally take the land and David becomes king, they build, David makes preparation and Solomon completes the task of building a permanent temple. And it's a glorious building. It's incredible. And God says, I am now your neighbor. I dwell beside you. I dwell in your city. I have chosen out of all the cities in the world, I've chosen Jerusalem to be my dwelling place. And you who live in Jerusalem are my neighbors. And you, Israel, are my people. This is what has been happening. And then when we get to the New Testament, we realize 
that physical temple wasn't the final stage either because when Jesus comes, He is the place where heaven and earth meet. Wherever He goes, it's, it's like the temple is in that place. People can come to Jesus, not just go to the temple. They can come to Jesus and be healed. They can come to Jesus and have their sins forgiven. Whenever they take a meal with Jesus, it's like you're having a sacrificial meal. In the law of Moses, Jesus is that temple. He is the meeting of heaven and earth. He is that place. And now, Emmanuel is true. God with us. But that's still not the final form. Jesus says it's good. Tells us in John chapter uh, um, 14 and 16. It's good that I go away. Because if I go away physically, I can send someone like me, another comforter, a paraclete to be with you. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. Jesus ascends to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And Peter's able to proclaim that if you repent and are baptized, you will have the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, God Christ, the Holy Spirit, are able to live within the followers of Jesus Christ. And, and throughout the New Testament, we see that temple theology working its way out. Now, the temple doesn't have to be located in just one place. Every place the followers of Christ are, every place the followers of Christ come together and form a congregation, that's the temple. In fact, every individual follower of Christ is also a little temple, a place where heaven and earth come together. And it can spread over the entire world. God wants to be with His people, and, and now His presence can be throughout the world. But that's not the final form. What all of that has been leading to is a condition in which God can be fully, completely present and united with His people. Where the entire universe can be made new in such a way that that reality is possible. And the image that Scripture uses is that that is the wedding of the Lamb. That is the marriage of God with His people through Christ. Revelation 21, we read this, or I'm going to just look at the first part of it right now. We read this for our Scripture reading. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throng saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and God Himself will be with them, and He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God says, I want to be present Sin has been keeping me away, and now at last, sin has been conquered and I can be with my people. And I'll wipe every tear away. That's a call back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 25 is the passage that that particular promise is based on. On this mountain, 
Isaiah says, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all of his people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. The new Jerusalem is the people of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. As you continue to read in chapter 21, you find out that there are gates. And you find out that there are foundations. And every foundation and every gate has a name. And and there are 24 names in all. There are 12 names of the tribes of Israel. There are 12 names of the apostles of Jesus Christ. It's the Old Testament church and the New Testament church all bound together in this one reality. The New Jerusalem the bride of Christ, the perfected people of God. Let's just stop for a second. There's a couple of other things I want to say, but let's just stop for a second and think about that. If you ever did get married, did you take a bath before you got married? Did you comb your head? Did you make sure there weren't, like, you know, jelly stains on your shirt, smudges on your face from whatever you ate last? Did you clean yourself up for your wedding day? Did you wear your ordinary working clothes, you know, clothes that you had weeded the garden in earlier? Or did you wear your best? Why do we do that on our wedding day? Because a wedding day is full of symbolism. Paul says it's a mystery. It's echoing this wedding day. Sometimes we Christians want to know why there's still suffering in the world. Why do we suffer? And that's a mysterious question. It's a very big question. But part of the reason is that right now you and I are being cleaned up and prepared to be the bride of Christ. Why do I still suffer temptation? That's a mysterious question. There's a big bunch of different answers that go along with that, but part of the answer is right now you suffer temptation to help prepare you, to clean you up and dress you to be part of the bride of Christ. Why do I have to sacrifice what I want for the good of other people? That's so that you can be prepared to become part of this incredible union with God, the bride of of Christ. Why do I have to serve poor people and sick people and in prison? Why do I do that? Part of that is so that you will be spotless and stainless and without blemish on your wedding day, the marriage with the Lamb. Why do we come to worship week after week? Take the Lord's Supper, sing our songs, pray our prayers, read our Scriptures, encourage each other. Why do we do that? Part of the answer is that that is one of the ways God cleans us and purifies us and dresses us to make us ready for our wedding day, the marriage with the Lamb. That reality is coming. The people of God... Here's the answer on the study sheet. The people of God are being prepared right now to become the pure bride of Christ. The people of God are being prepared right now to become the pure bride of Christ. That's what's happening. 
This whole period right here is like our engagement period with Christ. We are being prepared to be part of that incredible culmination that is on its way. John is given a vision of what the new Jerusalem is like, and there are gates, and there are foundations, and there's streets made of gold, but the gold is like pure glass, and the walls are, everything's gold and beautiful, and the gates are solid pearl. And We get this little bit of description. You can just read down, but... The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold. He measured the city, its gates and its walls. The cities were laid out like a square. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with the rod, and he found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. That's an interesting little detail there. I've said before that the book of Revelation, if you took out all the different allusions to the Old Testament the book of Revelation would only be about two and a half chapters long. Uh, there's so many callbacks to the Old Testament here. And the very dimensions of the city is a callback to a key function in the Old Testament. What's the shape of the city that we call heaven, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ? What's the shape? Well, it's as long as it is wide as it is high. What shape is that? You're allowed to say it. It's okay. It's all right. There's only two elders here today. You can say it. What, what is it? It's a cube. Where else have we gotten the imagery of a cube in the Bible? Where else? I mean, building a cube-shaped city doesn't make a lot of sense from an architectural point of view. Where have we gotten this imagery of a cube, especially a solid gold cube? You go back and read the dimensions of the tabernacle that Moses was shown how to make on Mount Sinai. There was the holy place where the priests ministered every week. And then beyond that, there was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And if you calculate the dimensions, it's actually kind of difficult to do this, but if you calculate the dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, it was exactly a cube, ten cubits by ten cubits by ten cubits. When Solomon makes the new temple in Jerusalem, he builds it according to the pattern of the tabernacle, but it sort of doubles everything. The Holy of Holies is twenty cubits by twenty cubits by twenty cubits, a perfect cube coated with gold. What do you think is being symbolized when we are told that our city, which is us, where we will live with God forever, is a perfect cube? What are we being told? The whole city, that whole reality, is the Holy of Holies. That's where you and I will live. The Holy of Holies. The that's kind of the thought of that is kind of continued in verses 22 and following of chapter 21. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You can't have a temple if you are in the center of the temple. So there's no special place in heaven because heaven is that special place. The Lord 
God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light. And the lamp, the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are the marriage that's coming is a temple idea because we are going to be joined in the presence of God permanently. All of New Jerusalem, here's what's in your study sheet, all of the New Jerusalem will be the Holy of Holies, and God will be fully present there. Who could go into the Holy of Holies in the Law of Moses? Only one man, especially chosen man, the high, high priest, only one time of year, only if he brought blood to cleanse himself from sin, and only then if he brought blood to cleanse the nation from sin, could he dare to enter in briefly into the presence of God only to run away. We will live there. We will live there. It says nothing impure will ever be in there. Well, of course, if it's the temple, if it's the holy of holies of the temple, of course nothing impure will. Aaron and all of his descendants had to take off all of their clothes that might have dirt from the outside on them. They had to baptize themselves, wash themselves completely, and then put on new clothes just for the purpose of going into the holy of holies. Nothing impure can go in there. That may cause you to have a question. It certainly had caused me to have a question this week. What am I going to be doing there if nothing impure can go there? How, how can I get in? And the answer is actually in the same verse that mentions that, right? Verse 27, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why will you be in heaven? You'll be there if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Why will you be pure enough to be in heaven? You are pure enough because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you have put your trust not in yourself, but you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've said... Who's going to run my life? Not me. It's going to be Jesus Christ. If you've said, Jesus has things in my life that He wants me to change, I will be changing those things. If you've said, I am proud to confess Jesus Christ is my Lord, I will confess Him and I will continue to confess Him all of my life. If you've said, I want to be taken and plunged in the waters of baptism, so that I can be raised up in a new life, a life granted to me by the power of Jesus Christ. The same power that raised Jesus Himself from the dead will raise me up a new creature. If that's happened to you, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you can enter the marriage of the Lamb.
knowing that that's our hope, what kind of people are we going to be this week? You know, that, that whole hope kind of helps put the temptations that Satan throws at us in perspective, don't they? Doesn't it? Satan comes up to us and says, Oh, you know, a little impurity in your sex life. How bad can that be? Weigh it against heaven. And you decide how bad that is. Telling a little lie to avoid an awkward conversation. How bad can that be? Weigh it against heaven. And you decide how bad it is. A little unfaithfulness to my spouse. How bad can that be? A little cheating in business. How bad can that be? A little foul language spouting out of my... A little hatred of those who are different than I am. How bad can that be? Weigh it against heaven. And it will all become clear. This week, brothers and sisters, this week, heaven is already reaching out to you. This week, Jesus says, you are mine. Be spotless. Be pure. Live for what is going to happen when you and I can be together forever. That's our hope. If you want to be part of that hope, if you've never become a Christian, never been baptized, never put on Jesus Christ, or if you need prayers to get your life back where it needs to be, if you've been unfaithful and need to change, or if there's some, some other thing that's really besetting you and you're struggling with and you need prayers for that, then you can come forward right now and, and tell us what we can do for you as we stand and are led in song.